This episode of Truth's Table is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers, publishers of children's books for all readers. Our mission is to ignite a universal passion for reading by creating books for everyone. Visit penguinrandomhouse.com. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, C. How you doing, girl? You know I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> As is my practice. I'm out here, girl. I'm out here. How are you doing? I'm good, girl. I'm not out here yet because I'm a halfway uh, uh, Pfizer princess. <laughs> well, I'm going to be out there, okay? No, you got out there with your mask still, okay? <laughs> Don't get too free. The people are like, <laughs> they've been too free now. I done made some investments in some masks because they just, they here to stay. So I was like, let me go ahead and stock up. So well, the, the, flu, the flu is down, you know, there's, there's some, there's some benefits to, yeah. you know, this kind of, this good hygiene, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a whole Pfizer princess. I've been double shotted. Praise the Lord. I'm not double shotted. So I'm, I'm double shotted. I'm like, give me some Moderna over here. Whatever you want to give me, I'm ready to receive. <laughs> I'm ready to receive. We ain't mixing vats over here. Exactly. I'm about to be a whole right. Pfizer princess too, girl. So I'm yes. excited. You're on your way. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, but no, I, I'm I'm hoping that we can, uh, people get more and more educated about it. They're, they're able to get their anxieties, um, you know, their doubts and their concerns, their questions answered well. Yes. Uh, we owe people that, um, but there's really good solid information out there. So I'm a, I am definitely an advocate of let's go ahead and get, get these vaccinations. Yes, get the vaccinations, get free, y'all. So <laughs> y'all see that Michelle is not at the table with us, which means we, it can mean two things, actually. It could mean it things. can mean many things. It could be a black woman. <laughs> it could be a black woman rising. It could be a behind the book episode, which is what it is. <laughs> this is a truth table behind the book. White Evangelical Racism with Dr. Anthea Butler at the table. Welcome to the table, Dr. Butler. It's so good to have you here. Oh, thank you all for having me. This is really great. I'm excited. Yes, we are so excited to have you at this table. And you know what? Just in case our sisters at the table don't know who you are, let me let them know what time it is, okay? Dr. Anthea Butler is the Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a sought-after commentator on the BBC, MSNBC, CNN, the History Channel, and PBS. Professor Butler regularly writes opinion pieces covering religion, race, politics, and popular culture for NBC Think, Religion News Services, the Washington Post, and CNN. Her books include Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Her newest book for UNC Press is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, which is out now, and Reading Race, How Publishing Created a Lifeline for Black Baptists in Post-Reconstruction America. Welcome to the table, Dr. Butler. Thank you for having me. I'm just ready to go. Let's let's do this. <laughs> 
Well, we are excited to have you. And, you know, I'm always like, let's let, let's give our roses to, to our sisters out here, especially our African-American academics. And so I'm so grateful to have you here and also to introduce uh, potentially many people will know who you are, but I'm always eager and excited, particularly for our audience that are college students to to see who they can be and become and listen to. So that in many ways, that's an exciting opportunity for us to to introduce you to uh, the people who will one day walk in your shoes, um, we hope. And so I have a just an opening question for you. We, we got to hear kind of your formal bio and it's your shortened bio. It's highly impressive. You clearly have, have paid your dues and you do the things. Um, and academia is is wild. <laughs> so, yes. so, I, so what it has taken you to get the, the career that you have and the respect that you have across disciplines is just tremendous. Could you introduce yourself to the sisters at the table as just like who you, who you really are? <laughs> not only your academic identity, I know you're not incongruent, yeah. but can you give us a snapshot into to, to Anthea at the table today? Well, Anthea at the table today is a lot of things, but I think, you know, I would probably turn myself a scholar activist. And I think that's really important because one of the things that I think that people think about professors is that we stay in our offices and doing work all the time. And like, I like to tell my students, I'm like, don't come looking for me in my office, especially not now when the, when the panorama is here. Right. So, you know, but I think it's really important for me to tell truth and to be out there fighting for black people. That's, that's my first and foremost thing. I teach African-American religion, you know, Know, religions of the African diaspora, I'm really down for us, first and foremost. And I'm always thinking about the ways in which I can be helping us get through all the kinds of racism, sexism, you know, all these things that are affecting our lives right now. And I think there's a lot. And so that's the first thing I'm about. I'd say the second thing that I'm about really is a sense in which how we have to think about who we are as, as people of faith, what we are doing in this world and and how that needs to a either change uh grow up um look forward confront all of those things and that's part of what i'm doing too as well and then i think the third thing is like i you know like everybody else in, in this last year I've been really pinned down. I'm a real traveler and have been traveling for a long time, like over 20 years, like really hard. And this is the first year I haven't been on a plane in over a year. And it's been a really weird experience, I have to say. But, you know, for all of that, I'm good. And yeah, that's how I could write a book in a year. Wow. In a whole year. Wow. Yeah. That is impressive. My goodness. Because right. look, I'm a slow writer. So I'm like, whoo. You're getting all the props from me. <laughs> you were able to write this here. Um, especially in a parallelogram. Okay. That's yeah. the thing. Trying to write in this climate is so difficult. So difficult. So all the props to you, uh, Dr. Brother. That actually leads me to my first question for you. I think it, I, I think that some people would assume that they know what led you um, uh, to write this book or what the the straw was that broke the camel's back that made you go, you know what? I'm about to write about white evangelical racism, you know, because mm-hmm. that's a that's a seriously heavy topic that impacts our lives uh, politically and economically, economically, so many different ways. Um, and so I'm curious to hear from you. What made you say, think, um, decide to write this book for such a time as this? What, yeah. what, what compelled you to do that? 
Well, one is I went to an evangelical seminary and identified as evangelical for a while. And now I don't. So that's number one. So that'll tell you a lot. And we'll probably get into that a little bit later. The the second reason why it happened actually during the George Zimmerman trial, I wrote a piece for an uh, uh, outlet that I used to write for called Religion Dispatches uh, called uh, America's Racist God. And in it, I talked about this book from the 1970s uh, from um a philosopher who asked, is God a white racist? And that question was weighing heavy on me as George Zimmerman was acquitted of killing Trayvon Martin. And because of that article, I got a lot of flack from white wingers and, you know, Rush Limbaugh and all these people came after me. I had death threats. I had all this kind of stuff, right? And so I knew that I had hit a nerve with people. It's scary, but you also know when you hit a nerve, you know, hit dogs holler. Well, you know, this, this dog was hollering and this dog been hollering. So the, you know, when Trump came in, that was clearly to me a signal about how bad things were going to get. And so in 2019, I wrote an op-ed called, you know, about white evangelicals and why you keep asking people about why do they like Trump? You know why? It's racism because they racist. And so, I, you know, I got a lot of mail for that. And I thought this might make a good book. And so my editor came to me and said, could you think about making that a longer piece? And I like, yeah, I could write a whole history about it. And that's what I did. So the book is a 200 plus year history of evangelicals and racism, the story they don't like to tell about themselves. You know, and it makes sense. I mean, nobody likes to tell the story about themselves that nope. puts them in a position to have to reckon with um, you know, their greatest weaknesses, their greatest unrepented injustices, right? And so if you have power, you can shape an whole denomination or reality that avoids reckoning with that. Uh, so in a lot of ways, I look at, I look at this book as a, as a means of grace. Um, your power can delude you, but when people are clear and say like, this is what it is, you can run, but you can't hide. And that's actually a gift. Yeah. Uh, to people. So I, I'm really grateful for the work that you've done. I also recognize that in doing this work as a Black woman, um, it's not esoteric. It is not a topic that is abstract. It, it's reality. Um, there are broken bones and there's blood that cries out related to this topic even right now. And so I'm curious about, uh, Dr. Butler, how you, um, how, how your spiritual disciplines and your psychological disciplines, what they look like in order for you to approach this topic. And as you mentioned before, there is no topic, I, I, this is Christina's two cents, that is as controversial uh, when you talk about white evangelicalism as, as racism. Yeah. Um, that, will, that will elicit death threats. And, you know, this, this, this visceral, just almost irrational response. And so how, how do you um, make the decision to still enter in? Because that's what you decided to do. <laughs> you still enter mm -hmm. in graciously, um, but take good care of your spiritual and psychological health in doing that. Well, I think one thing is, you know, you, if it's actually worse and you all know this, so I don't have to tell you, if you don't answer your call and you know how bad it can be. So, you know, that's, that's number one. So you got to do what you're supposed to be doing. Right. And this is what I am supposed to be doing. I think secondly, you know, I make sure that things don't get into me. I, you know, I've spent over 20 years teaching really tough things about African-American religion and religions of the diaspora. And if you deal with slavery, you've already read a lot of stuff. And so when you start to see things like George Floyd or you get the, you know, the attacks and all this stuff, I don't let everybody talk it at me on Twitter like they want to. I don't argue with these folks. I just block you. You know, I just cut you off. I just put your email in the round file. If your email is threatening, I send you over to the Penn police so that you can get dealt 
dealt with. So, you know, anybody think about writing something, you know, be, be warned because that's where you're going next. Um, I am not afraid to cut folks off, you know, and never speak to them again if they come out the side of their neck. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but it's just the truth. I have to protect myself. And, you know, but I think the most important thing, especially right now, and I think this is important for a lot of maybe your listeners and, you know, watchers to hear is that I'm not watching George Floyd be murdered on a loop. I'm not watching that young man that was 13 years old being shot over and over again. What's what the news media is doing right now. And I'm part of the media. So I have to understand this is to keep black people in this state of constant fear of hurt, of upset. And, and we need to be upset about these things. I'm not saying that we don't. What I do say is that you don't need to take this into your spirit and make it crush you at the same time, because I think that's not healthy. And that's why a lot of people are, are really, you know, hanging by a thread right now. That's a strong case for the beauty of boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> the beauty of boundaries. Exactly. Exactly. I love that you, yeah, that's exactly what I heard was just um, the importance of boundaries. And I, I often say on the show that boundaries protect what is sacred. <laughs> your personhood is sacred. Your yeah. life is sacred, Dr. Butler. Your mind is sacred. And you're protecting that at all costs. Um, and so I I recognize that. I appreciate that. And I, I know the sisters at the table should be able, you know, to glean that gem and hold on to that one tight um, as we are just living in some times that require a whole lot of boundaries. Uh, I'm going to do something different that I don't normally do, but I'm going to, this early in the show, but I really want um, to get into a little bit more of your narrative. And you can, you share a little bit of your narrative in, in the book. And so mm-hmm. if you don't mind, I'd like to read an excerpt of your book back to sure. you and have you uh, unpack it and talk to us and take us on this journey. Um, I am reading, first of all, what chapter is this? This is Whitewashing Racism. Um, and first of all, the tap- chapter titles are superb. <laughs> so I am on page 89. Mm-hmm. And, let me go and you brought it back some names and I was like, oh, I forgot about this person. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> let me go ahead and read right now. Here is where evangelical racism intersects with my personal story. Once upon a time, I was an evangelical, a Pentecostal to be exact. I was happily ensconced in church on the way and was preparing to start at Fuller Seminary in the fall of 1992. That spring, the Rodney King verdict came down and the riots happened. I had a front row seat to one of the ways that evangelicals decided to deal with this traumatic event. Evangelical churches decided to come together under the aegis of Church on the Ways, Pastor Hayford, to hold what they called a Love LA service to heal the racial and social wounds of the city. Joining Hayford were Lloyd John Ogilvie of Hollywood Presbyterian Church and Kenneth Palmer of Faithful Central Bible Church, a large African-American church based in South uh, well, the back then was South Central Los Angeles. Yes, yeah. I, I lived in LA, so I'm sorry. So, uh, so you know, you know exactly what it was. I, yeah, it, it, I don't understand South LA. I'm like, what are you talking about? No, I'm sorry. It's, it's still kind of foreign to me. So sorry about that. <laughs> but you had to be proper on that. Um, it was to be a healing celebration, a chance for reconciliation. For me, it was the moment I found out that despite my frenetic activity and full steam participation in the church, I was invisible. For the service, I was sitting by Hayford's mother, who knew me from several other events. She turned to me at the greeting time and said, welcome to church on the way. At that moment, I knew that no matter how much I had worked or served or prayed with people, I was simply a Black person visiting the church on the way. Much like many evangelicals of color, I was just a Black person in this woman's white space. I had been welcomed due to the situation, but I couldn't possibly be a member of the church she belonged to. 
That moment encapsulated for me what evangelical attempts at interracial cooperation accomplish, invisibility, end quote. Powerful stuff. Dr. Butler, can you take us on just your journey into church on the way, your journey out of evangelicalism? Y'all don't have that long today. I'm going to make this shorter for you. <laughs> sum it up for us. But I'm going well, to sum it up for you very nicely. You know, Catholic girl moves to California, doesn't like going to mass because she doesn't find anything. Somebody asked her to go to church. She gets saved. Right. And then I find myself in this church and I think that it's really great, except that, you know, all of my white friends are getting married and getting stuff and I'm not getting anything. So let me just let me put that there, because I know some of your listeners. This is why you in church in the first place. But I'm going to tell you that it don't work like that. So that's number one. Um, you know, I would, I felt like I should go to seminary. I originally wanted to be a Christian counselor. I realized that I don't have the patience for it because I just tell people off. So that's two, but you know, in the midst of that, I I have actually another story I'm going to tell because it's really good for this truth table. That event was really hard. And part of that, it dovetailed with something else that's not in the book because that event happened. And then that fall, I went into seminary, but right before that fall, um, I, there was another African-American gentleman who got my friend pregnant, married her. Okay, here we go. Um, you know, if she's listening, I, I know this is going to hurt your feelings. I hope you're still married to him. <laughs> I'm going to just put it like that. But um, he decided to go to Fuller too. They gave him $300 a month to go to school. They gave me zero. Come on. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the woman who spoke to me was, uh, you know, on the pastoral staff, African-American, had babysat for Jack Hayford when she went to school back in the late 60s. Okay, so that's number two. When I went to see her, she had a desk full of stuff. She had a, a, a fried chicken box lunch she was eating when she met with me and a stack of messages that she had not answered. They did not give her any administrative assistance. And she told me, don't go to Fuller and become a feminist. And I thought, I don't know quite everything about being a feminist, but I know I don't want to be you. (laughs) Because that, you know, she's, she has passed on now and I'm not saying her name out of respect, but, but I say that to say these two things bookended together really showed me about what it was like being in that church that I would always be first a woman who would have to be subordinate to a man. And secondarily that, you know, even if I wanted to get an education, I wasn't worth paying for. And three, I was also invisible no matter what. So why should they even have to give me $200 a month to go to seminary? And I was broke the first year. Okay. Y'all I was broke, broke, broke. Okay, so it it was it it was a real experience. But I think what Fuller did for me was to show me that there was a different way to be an evangelical. And one of the people that I write about and who's dedicated the book to Bill Pinnell was really a good man and helped me out a lot to think through some of the things that were happening, because in L.A. at that time, it was, you know, it was really intense in terms of race and and race relations and, and churches and Christianity and just some of the ways in which these white churches behave. And even some of the black churches, you know, in terms of, you know, doing things in city, it was, it was not good. So I I make that a short story to say this, you know, I I have had a real experience of, of evangelicalism. I know what it is. I know it inside out. I know how people believe and think. And, you know, even though I'm not one anymore, 
I think that those formative defining experiences helped to make the foundation of this book so that I could say things like, you know, colorblind racism is, is, is crazy. The, the racial reconciliation stuff is fake. And this is how they gaslighting you this whole time. Mm-hmm. The whole time. So at that point, Dr. Butler, about just the hyper invisibility that you had in that space, right? Being there, but never being known. And then contrasting that with the earlier story of you just, you, you know, putting out a piece that just tells the truth and then you become hyper seen in a mm-hmm. way that's vitriolic and dangerous, right? To yeah. your person. And, ne- and never, never a place in the middle. for the black woman believer in this space, either Uh hyper invisible or hyper seen as an, as an object uh, uh, to be, to be warned against. And so uh, I I think even in our short time together, that those things have already been lifted up. One of the things that I find really interesting about, about your book, and y'all need to go read it now um, (laughs) or get it on audible as I do with my books um, is that, you know, you um, is that you talk about the way in which Christianity and whiteness have are like synonyms obviously in this western american context and and kind of the historical narrative and story of that would you mind sharing with some of our listeners about that why those things are so are are so interconnected and 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 seemingly synonymous i grew up in a context where i actually did not know that there were white people who were christians not of any significant number Mm -hmm. my world was so so black and um and it wasn't until i was in my early 20s that i was like oh a lot of white people that say they're Christians. Mm-hmm. And today I still feel like there's a lot of white people who say that they're Christians. What's happening? Uh, but but you but you lift this up in the text. So can you talk about that? How it is that those things became cinnamon, synonyms? Yeah, well, I think I'm, I'm going to use one big example that I think a lot of people will understand. If we're, we're talking about the history of slavery, you know, people think about, you know, biblical interpretation. And a lot of times when I talk about this book, people want to argue scriptures with me. And I'm like, really don't argue scriptures with me because people use scriptures to enslave people. So that's number one. Number two, I went to seminary. I'm always beat you. Okay. So don't worry about that. But the third thing is, is that I think you need to understand how this, this is really strong. And one of the stories I write about in the book is about Lecrae and I'm not going to give it away because it, I, I, I open out the first chapter of the book with it, but it's a real way to show. Talk about it too. How, how, huh? He came to the table and talked about it too. So you can- he did. Oh my God. I, I I would love to know what he said because I'm sure he's like, I can't believe she wrote about this. Send you the link. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Cause I think, you know, I, I, he probably thinks I might've dealt with him unfairly, but I think it was a perfect example of how people think about, you know, slavery right now. And that this was a blessing for, you know, for, for black people. So you can become Christians. And, you know, two weeks ago at Baylor University, there was a conservative group that had a thing that said, you know, well, God ordained slavery so that, you know, y'all will become Christians, you know, understand this. And so I think this is this is part and parcel of it. So that's one part that I think is a really important foundation of the book is the ways in which people still think this today. Right. So that's one. The second is how these ideas out of slavery go into reconstruction and how they form ideas about the family. So white women get to be pure and virginal, all this stuff about purity class and purity rings and all this stuff. I'm going to hurt some of y'all out here, but you know, that stuff comes out of besmirching black women and making black women look overly sexual and lifting up white women. Okay. And I'm thinking about a particular couple that really made a lot of news the last few years about this whole purity thing. Right. And I'm like, 
you can do this, but you don't have to do it in the way you're doing it because it actually uplifts and supports white racism. You are buying into this whole thing that has been said and not looking at scripture for yourself, but you're buying into the white evangelical industrial racial complex, which ends up saying to you that you have to be this certain way in order to be accepted, that whiteness is always going to be the purest thing that you can aspire to, and a white woman is going to be the purest thing that you can aspire to, and that a white man is the rightful head of everything, not just the home, but the but the government, the schools, everything should be run by them. And I think that might be hard for people to understand in this kind of short way that I'm telling it to you, but it plays out in so many ways about public policy and how we talk about things and how, you know, Black conservatives especially have thought about these things. I think it's really important to start to, you know, dismantle these foundational things because what they do is hurt you in the long run. And so you end up not being able to get the healthcare you want. You end up not being able to think about the ways in which you need to exist in the world. You end up having to think about, you know, what kind of spouse you pick. And all of this is really is, is read through a lens of whiteness that starts off in the 19th century with evangelicals. Mm, my goodness. Wow. Well, thank you for that breakdown, Dr. Butler. On that note, let's take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we have some more questions for Dr. Butler about white evangelical racism. Don't go nowhere, y'all. We'll be right back. <laughs> Here at Truth Table, y'all know we love the kids, so we are happy and honored to present to you a New York Times bestseller, The King of Kindergarten by Derek Barnes and illustrated by Vanessa Brantley Newton is the story of one confident little boy taking pride in his first day of kindergarten. Derek was inspired to write this book as he prepared his own sons for kindergarten and wanted to give a beautifully upbeat and positive view of a whole new world inside a classroom. This empowering story will give new kindergartners a reassuring confidence boost and Vanessa Brantley Newton's illustrations exude joy. Starting kindergarten is a big milestone and the hero of this story is ready to make his mark. He's dressed himself eating a pile of pancakes and can't wait to be a part of a whole new kingdom of kids. The day will be jam-packed, but he's up to the challenge, taking new experiences in stride with his infectious enthusiasm. And afterward, he can't wait to tell his proud parents all about his achievements and then wake up to start another day. The little boy's enthusiasm is utterly infectious. He's confident without being overbearing, and while his parents tell him he's the king of kindergarten, he doesn't mention that to his classmates. He just uses those positive positive vibes to reach out and make lots of friends. Truth Table listeners, you can purchase The King of Kindergarten by Derek Barnes when you visit penguinrandomhouse.com. See, you know what I'm grateful for? Girl, what you grateful for? I am grateful for our Patreon supporters. Girl. Oh, for sure. For sure. We could not do the work of Truth Table without our Patreon supporters. Tell so the we, truth. We want to thank y'all because without your dollars, we wouldn't be able to pay our producers, our now video editor, because y'all know you can get some video content from Truth Table now when we try to step it up. Hello, Patreon I people. I mean, come on. And we couldn't pay our teachers that come and teach our um, Black women discipleship group. So we want to thank y'all for being Patreon supporters. So many things we're able to do because you decided to partner with us. And we just want to thank you, thank you, thank you for rolling with us since the beginning and invite you all that are listening at the table or standing room only to come on and participate in the work that we're doing by becoming a Patreon sponsor. Yes, 
for as little as $5 a month. That is less than Starbucks coffee. It's less than DoorDash. It's less than Uber Eats. Come on now. You can support. We know about these things personally. We know about these things. COVID-19, COVID-19. Uh, we, we're speaking from a personal place. Yes, yes, yes. Testify. <laughs> so for as little as $5 a month, y'all can support the work of Truth's Table and just keep this table going. Sustain our work. This is a labor of love and we are so grateful to be at this table. So our standing room section folk, come on and support us. Our sisters at the table, come on and support our work at patreon.com slash truthstable. We are back at the table with Dr. Butler and Dr. Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism. So uh, Dr. Butler, thank you for that breakdown of just how whiteness and um, Christianity became synonymous, um, at least in the West and maybe globally at this point. Um, but we, everybody, we're working hard to disentangle it, okay? Because we know that this is an Eastern religion first and foremost. But anyway, don't let me get on my soapbox because I could go. <laughs> so, but I, um, you know, what I found fascinating uh, reading your book was um, reading about, goodness, which chapter was it? I feel like it was chapter two. It was Saving the Nation. I believe, yes, it was that 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 chapter. And you're talking about how in the 1950s, this, this big, you know, Billy Graham and all these, you know, big white evangelical uh, male uh, figureheads, uh, <laughs> always male, uh, figureheads are uh, talking about the great threat, right, to mm -hmm. the faith, the evangelicalism and its communism. Yes. And so I couldn't help but uh, think about our current moment and how the greatest threat to evangelicalism right now is what? Uh, critical race theory, right? And um, um, <laughs> and the woke soldiers, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I was just like, oh my goodness, these are some real like parallels here. And so I'm curious, uh, just to hear in your own words. First of all, can you talk to our sisters and tell them what is communism? They may not know what that is. You know, they may may not know what is communism. Karl Marx, you know, religion is opium to the masses, blah, blah, blah. But communism is basically a system in which people are saying that we are going to be communal. We're going to take care of everything for ourselves. So in other words, we're not going to have the kind of health care you have in America right now. You might have some health care that somebody's going to pay attention to and pay for. But, you know, Communism really isn't even like Russia right now. This is this is the other part of it. But I want to talk about it in the terms of the way Billy Graham used it and how people used it in the 50s. Because basically, if you think about things like the Red Scare, where they have all, you know, the House, you know, committee that was run and done all this stuff where they started accusing people who were trying to work against racism, against racism and called them communists. I think that's really important for the moment we are now, because what you could do right now is insert the word socialism or critical race theory is put instead of communism in the book. And you'll have what's happening right now, essentially, because people don't want to talk about racism. These are the code words that they use to say, oh, if you believe that, you know, an anti-racism or you don't want racism, then you must be antithetical to what America is. In the case of Billy Graham, he was thinking that communism was like a religion. And that's actually the more important thing to think about here. He thought about it as a religion. It was gonna be a religion of atheism, that it would take everybody away from God and that we had to fight it. And that some of these civil rights people wanted to take things away from God because you know they just wanted to drink out of the same water fountains and have like the same kind of schools and everything else and have the same rights that everybody else says. I don't think there's anything communist about that. 
that's, you know, what the declaration said. That's what, you know, the constitution says, but of course they never pay attention to it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when we hear these words, either in the 1950s context or the context of today and used by evangelicals, what you have to hear is two things. One is we don't want this stuff because it means that the individual is, is not responsible. The government is going to be responsible for things, right? And we don't want the government to be responsible for every, anything because we're individuals and we can work out our salvation. We can make our money. We can do all this stuff. But the second thing you need to hear is that's a pejorative term to criticize people who are criticizing evangelicals and the kinds of things that they do that aren't, you know, that aren't in keeping with what they say they believe. And I think, you know, one of the things I really want to point out here at this moment is that we think about Billy Graham as being this great man because he was a great evangelist and all this other stuff. But Billy Graham is the person who is responsible for really marrying evangelicals with the political system, starting with Dwight Eisenhower. And he does this very well. And, you know, the only time he gets really upset about it is when he finds out his hero, Nixon, is actually not the person that he believed him to be and that he got caught out on tape talking about bad things about Jews. So I think that we need to see somebody like Billy Graham as a flawed figure, first of all, a figure that, you know, had racial issues and problems because he grew up in the South and he, you know, and all of these things that he says he believes, he really wants gradualism. He doesn't want Black people to get ahead. He doesn't want them to, you know, step over and ahead of white people. What he's saying is, is that, well, you know, when y'all get to heaven, you can be equal. But that's the same thing the slave master said. And I think that's really, you know, that's tough for people to hear, but I think, you know, you need to understand it to understand the ways in which he did King wrong. He, you know, he did not stand up for civil rights in the ways that people would like to think that he did. And I think it's also an important part of why a lot of evangelical leaders today do the same kind of, you know, dog and pony show, but they don't do anything else. And the Southern Baptist critical race theory this is just a way for them to start grifting and making more money. All these woke conferences about wokeism and all this. I'm looking at all these people going, man, they're going to steal a lot of money from people this summer <laughs> over trying to, you know, trying to scare white people when they don't even know what critical race theory is. At all, at all. You know, Dr. Brother, I'm, I'm curious, is there any, because uh, you really laid out the continuity, right, of, mm -hmm. you know, of communism and now wokeness and CRT. Is there any um, level of discontinuity between those criticisms back then in the 50s and now? Is there any discontinuity that you notice, anything that's different about it at all? I would say that the only thing that is different is that it's, it's even more regressive now. Mm. Back then, they, just, they, they would actually try to pretend. Now there's no pretending. Everybody is just out there with their stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if I wanted to say it in this way, it's become much more uncouth. You know, Graham knew, they knew how to be polite back then. Even in the 70s, when you get Jerry Farwell Jr. and all that, you know, he, it, senior, excuse me, daddy. It, it's it's a way in which they try to elide this by, you know, putting Black people next to them and everything else. Now we just got a free-for-all. I mean, Donald Trump was really interesting in this way. You know, people talk about Trump was this, Trump was that. Trump is a mirror to who you really are. And so when Trump came out, Trump showed evangelicals for who they really were. It, it wasn't like he was making them do stuff. They just, they started jumping through the hoops on their own because yeah. they knew how to answer to their master's voice. Yeah. 
And, and that's what happened. And so I think today the situation in evangelicalism is much, is much, much worse because basically they're like, we don't care. We're just going to do what we do. And this is who we are. And that's that. Now, the problem is for other people, especially for black people, is that how do you remain if you are in these circles? How do you remain with these people? How do you keep co-signing on this? And I think about people like Alveda King and others, and I'm just like, man, you know, this is this is not good for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it was it was a money grift before, but now you just look like a complete sellout. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a real problem for people. I, I don't look to those kinds of people to say, that's what I want Christianity to be. I don't look at that as an exemplar of Christianity. And I don't think anybody looks at white evangelicals in America anymore as exemplars of Christian life. Yeah. And I was, and I would say certainly there, there have been um, people of color representing um, the minority and persecuted, persecuted church movements of America who have never looked at that dominant group. In, a, yeah. in that way, um, e- even while reckoning with maybe shared ideas and mm-hmm. shared doctrines, and still oh, yeah. coming to very different conclusions about their application. And then, to your point, I mean, there is there is a lot of money to be made in scaring white people, um, and you know, entire networks and news stations, and like that's it's just a lot of money mm-hmm. to be made, and um, and also and, and a kind of fear that makes people feel. Um, feel pious as they, you know, as yes. they grab guns and as they close borders <laughs> and as they do whatever they, whatever they do um, uh, to kind of adopt this kind of feral mentality. Um, you know, you have so many, you have, you're a wonderful storyteller as I think all good historians are. And so you've got some really interesting stories that you highlight in, in, in the book. Can you share with us a, a story that you tell in the book that for you became kind of uh, a snapshot um, that the kind, that's kind of like the nucleus that kind of holds together. Like th- this, this is the moment for me, or this was my light bulb. And I, it may not be one of the ones that even I'm kind of necessarily drawn to, but I'm curious as you think about the stories that you've collected along the way to tell this narrative, uh, which one taps you on the shoulder the most? Honestly, I mean, I don't think I had a light bulb because I'm a historian, but I will say that while I was writing the book, the Lecrae thing happened. And that's the, I mean, that was the moment for me. I was just like, this is just too good. This just gave it to me. Like, thank you. I, I, you know, I hated that he had to go through that, but that was, that was like, I couldn't have asked for a better like start to a chapter was that story. And, you know, I think, you know, if he was just in a bad position anyway, this is where I, you know, I'd like to say, you got to get some better people. Because the people that you had that put you in that situation with two older white evangelical men, this is the kind of thing that happens over and over and over again. And that's why, for me, that moment crystallized everything about what happens with Black people and white evangelicalism when you get caught up in this situation that, you know, somebody says something wrong, you having to try to correct them, they keep stepping all over it, but they've said something that's just really heinous. And and should you 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 end up being complicit when you're not complicit because you're there. And so it's like co-signing that mess. And so I, I felt that because I really felt that. And I started up with that story because I was like, that could be me, you know, that 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 is that could have been me if I stayed. Mm-hmm. And and that for me was like a really moment. So I would say that's the that's the story. The story I start off with, because I remember I was crafting the chat uh, that particular chapter because I left it for last because I knew it would be very hard. So I literally wrote all the rest of the book and then came back to the beginning. 
And when I wrote that, when I, while I was writing that chapter, that event happened. And I was like, that's it. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, I, I've never spoken with him about it. I would really love to, but it just, you know, that whole thing with, what is it? Giglio or however you pronounce his name. Giglio. Yeah. You know, I was just like, wow, this is what you really think. This is how you think. And you are sitting up here talking to this young man in this way, as though this is a justification for this little play that you want to put on. It it said so much about, you know, the racial staging, this this performance of, of racial reconciliation. It just, it, it lined everything out. It really did. Wow. It's an embodiment of everything you were writing about. And I think it's coming up on a year. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming up on a year. It was, I think, a year June. Yeah. June. Mm-hmm. 20, summer 2020 was something else. It was something yeah, else. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a lot. Let's just pray 2021 ain't the shame, but we don't know. You know, <laughs> um, you know Dr. Butler, I'm wondering, um, on that note, I'm wondering what you would say to, um, I mean, I don't know, even for me, I'll just speak for myself. Evangelicalism is so bound to whiteness that I don't, I don't actually associate the evangelical title per mm-hmm. se with with, with black folks or with non-black people of color personally, because I just see it as a very political term anyway. And yeah. it's, that's my own thing. And that's an mm-hmm. article I need to write and should have been re- written a couple of years ago, but you know. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious about um, what you would say, right? Uh, for the sake of the conversation, I will use the title. What would you say to black evangelicals, to non-black people of color who are evangelicals, so people of color um, evangelicals who are, maybe at a crossroads or, or maybe coming to terms um, with uh, the, the current climate and maybe the, the, the ways that whiteness and Christianity has be- become synonymous. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, we have to uncover and de- disentangle those things. But, but what would you say? What would be your word of advice as somebody, you can think of them as somebody that's coming to you as somebody mm-hmm. who was there, um, coming to you for advi- advice, you know, as a mentor, like, what should I do? <laughs> what should yeah. I do? I would ask you to reconsider your history in that church or in that space, first of all. What, you know, what has the leadership said about race or racism? Have they ignored the times that things like, you know, um, Trayvon Martin or George Floyd or, you know, the hundreds of people who have died since, not, you know, 2014, 2013, even. We don't even have to go back, you know, you know, pick one. Have they talked about it? Have they cared about you when things like this happen? Did they, how did they behave when you talk about Black Lives Matter? How do, you know, what was their response last summer when everything was going down and there were marches? How do they talk about, you know, justice? Do they talk about Jesus and justice or are they just talking about nice little things, you know, to, you know, make it easy? Or as one of my other mentors said, are they talking about pornography when they need to be talking about racism? You know, is what what is the thing that they are talking about? I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that I would look at my relationships. What are these relationships like? Are they healthy? Am I just there to be the the black friend? Am I just there to you know add some color to the worship team? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, am I in leadership in that church or am I doing something else? How much of my life and my money have I given? Where has that gone? What have they given back to me in return? How have they supported me when I've been sick or I was, you know, unemployed or anything else? And then I think the finally, the last thing is I would ask myself is, what is my relationship to people that I know who aren't in these circles? And how do I deal with them? Do I always talk about them as, well, they're not saved? 
And, and so therefore I can't talk to them. Um, what about the people who critique this and that I, I feel uncomfortable around? And so if you have certain answers to this or you pick up my book and you read it and what's happening now is I'm getting a lot of people writing to me saying, I've gotten so hurt by this, what can I do? Then you need to think about finding another space to worship God in. Because, you know, right now you probably might or might not be going to church. There's plenty of things online that you can look at. You can stay in the comfort of your home. And you can think about the ways in which that maybe you haven't been fed the way you want to be fed because you've set up under racism this whole time. Because the fact of the matter is, this is the hardest part. This is going to be the part that hurts. You are complicit in supporting white racism. Mm. By, by sitting under these kinds of pastors and listening to these kinds of sermons and, and, and following after people who don't care about you as a human being and probably don't even think of you as a human being, you are perpetuating white racial structures. And you need to think about how that's affecting your life and the lives of the people you love. It's a, it's a painful thing to do. I mean, really what you just shared, even if you weren't talking about the topic of race, I think could be just a helpful primer for people thinking about, am I a part of an actual church? Mm-hmm. Uh, does my community have the ability to weep with me when I weep and to rejoice with me when I rejoice? And that covers a gamut, <laughs> a whole host of topics, yeah. but certainly it is a particular, I would say, um, ingrained and designed injustice of white evangelicalism to ignore black suffering and black identity. Yeah. Cause I your suffering doesn't mean anything. Functions. I think it's one of, I think it's one of the primary functions. Uh, the utility of it is to feel pious and racist and, and be racist at the same time. Oh, um, and so I think to, to sit in that, to, to, you know, that's just something to deeply reckon with. And yet the story for many people is that they can find themselves in places, even with a strong sense of cultural identity, for all for all kinds of reasons, you, how, how the Lord had, how you could just end up in just all kinds of places and look around. Okay, I'm getting a lesson here. Put this in my back, and a couple of years later, I'm gonna write a book about it. <laughs> so, um, even when I think about about your story, Dr. Butler, about kind of being in a space, gathering stories, gathering experiences, but also putting it in conversation with uh, the the really the, the breadth of, of of research and history on the topic. I'm super grateful to have you here. Um, we are going to uh, continue to, to push away at this topic. And I'm wondering what the final, um, you know, what, what you want people to do with this book. I, people will be in their feelings, as you know, uh, as you've experienced. Um, and, and, and that's fine. I think that's a part of prayer play. It's a part of conviction. Um, and hopefully that's what takes place for them. But what would you like to see the legacy of, of this particular book be? Uh, on the future of the church in the United States? Honestly, I want to, I want to start tearing down some structures. I, I, one of my favorite scriptures is about Jesus when he comes to clean the temple. I want to clean the temple. I, I'm not playing. I really want to knock over some tables. I want some things to come down because you see, it's not just about, you know, the racism is at the, the foundation of all of this, but there's a whole bunch of structures that come along with this. I mean, this the issue of voting right now, white evangelicals are supporting that and paying for it. The ways in which you, you know, voting has been just shaved away. White evangelicals, that's part of my book, right? The way the educational system has been shaved away and cut down because of this. The ways in which right now that they don't want to get vaccinated, okay? 30 to 40% of the evangelicals don't want to be vaccinated. They're going to kill us all. Okay. And I hate to say it like that, 
but they are going to be one of the reasons why we don't get to herd immunity because they believe in things that are not true. And so I think that what I want people to take away from this book is two things. One is to realize the prevalence and the perseverance of racism and evangelicalism, first of all. Second, I hope that if they got a racist friend that they'll, you know, I read this book. What well, you should get it, you know, because they need to think about it. Not because I need to sell books, but because you need to confront them. And third, I hope you do start confronting people. I hope this gives you some ammunition to talk to your pastor, to talk to the people that you're around, to say, how are we complicit? How are we supporting this structure of racism? How are we supporting these systems that are not giving life to Black people right now, or to Brown people, or to Asian people, anybody else? How is this taking the people of God and, and putting whiteness over everything else? And I think that's the important part that I want people to get out of this book. And you know, and if you're somebody, you know, if you happen to be white and you're listening to this, I need you to think about how come you sit at that table at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and don't ever confront your racist relative. You got a whole ammunition of four or five chapters here to confront them with everything. So maybe think about that. I, I was actually going to ask you if you had a word for the white folks standing in the standing room section. Because, yeah, right. It's like Thanksgiving yeah. is going to be here before we know it, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. It takes courage to love. It takes and and there is there is no burden like correcting family, and that and I think any any people group can relate to uh, the the weightiness of that. um, What that means to provide correction, but it is an expression of love. It is. It's an expression of love, you know. So uh, so anyway, thank you so much uh, for that, Dr. Butler. And yes, uh, I know you know you gotta sell books. I mean, I I I know that that wasn't the point of what you were just saying, but still, people you sell some books. So y'all buy the book. Please do. <laughs> Please buy her book, Dr. Hithia Butler's White Evangelical Racism. You know, Dr. Butler, on this note, we would love to kick it to you and for you to talk to our sisters at the table, tell them where they can buy your book, tell them where they can keep up with some projects. Please, this is your time to talk to our sisters and tell them what you want them to know about your work and your upcoming work and how they can follow you. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Anthea Butler. It's very simple. Um, I have a website, AntheaButler.com. Um, I am now writing for MSNBC um, for the platform. I'm a contributor now for the op-ed pages. So I just put one out on Jerry Falwell Jr. It's hot today. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about him. He's in a little trouble, I think. Um, and I think he's going to stay in trouble for a while because I think that Liberty University want their money back. Um, that's where you come down to them dollars. Go ahead. I, oh, yo, no, it's totally the it's totally the dollars that, you know, the rest of the stuff, they let him do that while he was there. It's, it's about the dollars. And that's part of what I'm trying to get at with the book too. Um, let's see what's the other stuff. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see, you know, other events that I'm doing, other talks that I'm giving in the next month. And uh, yeah, hit me up. I'd love to hear from people. You know, you need a speaker for something. I'm your person. And yeah. I mean, you know, this is this is all good. I'm just happy to be here with you all at Truth Table. And this has been a great experience. Yeah, well, we're so glad you came and, and, and stopped by the table, had a seat with us um, and talked to us just about your work. You know, we do hope and um, um, join you in your hopes that this book will begin to tear down some stru- uh, racial structures that have got to come down. Um, if they don't come down now, they will come down eventually, you know, because we know Jesus is going to set everything right. So yep. we just thank you so much, uh, Dr. Butler, for sitting at the table with us. And of course, we want to thank our sisters for sitting at the table with us. Let's keep the conversation going. Tell us your thoughts. Tweet us, DM us, 
uh, email us your thoughts about behind the book, <laughs> White Evangelical Racism by Dr. Anthea Butler. So we know y'all going to enjoy this episode. So we're grateful that y'all took your time to sit down at the table with us. We will see y'all next time. We want to thank you for taking a seat at the table with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about this episode using the hashtag Truth Table. Black women, did y'all know that we have our own Black Women's Discipleship Group on Facebook? Make sure to follow Truth Table on Facebook and join our Facebook group today. Invite your homegirls too. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Truth Table or email us your thoughts at info at truthstable.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table has a Patreon account now, so y'all can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable, or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truth Table is made possible by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York. I've been your hosts, Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.